Welcome to the official Global Trade Review podcast channel. Today, GTR brings you the best in trade and export content, with highlighted discussions and insights from GTR Asia 2019. The event took place in Singapore on September the 3rd to the 4th, 2019. If you missed the event or are looking to be involved next year, be sure to visit www.gtreview.com forward slash events for more information. Dates for 2020's event will be available soon. A lot can happen in a year. 2018's conference was dominated by the backdrop of ongoing trade tensions and potential ramifications of a full-scale trade war between the US and China. So what is new 12 months later? This session, The Future of Trade, Where is the Market Heading?, will bring experts together to reflect on a range of topics including trade tension and geopolitical environment. How bankers and corporates are coping with initiatives such as Belt and Road shifting economic activity eastwards, and where is Asia leading in terms of technology and innovation, and where does it need to catch up? Morning, everybody. It's fantastic to be in this wonderful venue today. And I am going to be giving just some brief uh, introductory thoughts before we begin the panel. Hopefully, if the, uh, oops, the slides come up behind me. Yes, the presentation is called Clause uh, is Cause, and I'll be explaining that title as I go through. But clearly what I'm talking about is what the trade war is really about and what happens next. So the first and most important point to make in the entire presentation is this, and that is the trade war, as we describe it, is not really about trade. So if we understand that, we already understand 90% of what we need to know. What is it about? It's about history being wrong. Here we have George Washington. I use no porter or cheese in my family, but such is made in America. Who does he sound like? We have Abraham Lincoln. Give us a protective tariff and we'll be the greatest nation on earth. Who does he sound like? Teddy Roosevelt. Thank God I'm not a free trader. Who does he sound like? Fairly familiar, isn't it? Basically, America has been protectionist for most of its history. So what is it really about? It's actually about power, because money is power, and we're arguing about which money is going to have the power in the 21st century. Is it going to be the US dollar, or is it going to be an alternative, and most likely the renminbi? That's the crux of what we're talking about here with the trade war, this power battle. So when we look at the US complaints vis-a-vis Chinese behavior on trade, and they are genuine complaints. For example, we have them saying, what about cheap money in China? What about tariffs and non-tariff barriers? What about intellectual property theft? And what about state help to firms? These are all valid complaints. But if we wrap them up, in a statement made at the 19th Party Congress in China a few years ago, where the official pronouncement was by by the year 2050, China will regain, regain its top spot globally. From an American perspective, particularly with a history of having been protectionist up until World War II, you see these things very, very differently. So America really shouldn't be surprised by this because here we have another historical American figure, Alexander Hamilton. And before he was a musical, he was actually a strategy. And he came up with the following argument. He said, what you really need in order to succeed are high tariffs, steal UK technology, lure British foreign experts, and basically dangle a large protected market and say, we're the future, the UK is the past. 
been there, done that, became global number one. That was Alexander Hamilton's trade strategy. It worked fantastically. What did it do for American GDP relative to British GDP? Well, you can look here on the chart and you can see the blue is America and the orange is British. And uh, as Queen Victoria would say, you've been there, done there, lost my T-shirt. We were only number one due to the empire. And of course, Singapore was part of that. That's how we maintained our global power. What did that actually mean? Oops, we've frozen for some reason. Sorry. Yep, there we go. Now, what did that actually mean? It meant America overtook the UK. Fair enough, you can say we're all better off for that. And we are all better off for that. I have no qualms with that whatsoever. But one important lesson from history also is that these power transitions aren't always peaceful or smooth. For example, at the beginning of the 20th century, two cousins, one of them the head of state of the UK and one of them the head of state for Germany, basically tried to play out a similar game with this conversation. Can I do that too, Georgie? And the answer being, no, you can't, Willie. And we ended up with World War I. So these power transitions don't always go smoothly, even when two countries are quite similar, like the UK and Germany were back then. So if you're the US and you're looking at this particular dynamic, you might say deja voodoo, because the Chinese economy is now officially larger than the US in purchasing power parity terms. That's according to the IMF. I dispute the quality of the data, but generally it's true. Technology, China claims to be ahead in quantum and AI, definitely is in 5G via Huawei. In terms of the military, well, China is building up much more rapidly than the US. And in terms of diplomacy, China has the Belt and Road Initiative and the US has wars in the Middle East. You know, which one's more popular globally? So again, Queen Victoria coming back, a bit shocked by that, you know, you'd say, been there, done that, lost my T-shirt. That's not really going to be a winning strategy for the US going forwards. So here's my clause in the clause is cause argument. This is von Clausewitz, or von Clausewitz, depending on how you want to pronounce it, the 19th century German military genius. And he very, very famously said that war is a continuation of politics by other means. Hands up who's heard people say that before. Okay, some of you. Well, in today's Pax Americana, fortunately, we don't have so many wars, or except outside the Middle East, but... He would argue that trade war is a continuation of politics by other means. So that's the Clausewitzian explanation for what, for what we're seeing today. But one key element of what Clausewitz argued that I want to stress is that he argued the following on war. He said there's only two different kinds of wars. Number one, limited aims, stop doing that, start doing this. Or number two, basically you control your enemy and you set terms to them. You dictate to them what they're going to do in every dimension. So what are we seeing so far in this trade war? Well, we're seeing type one. President Trump clearly wants fair trade. That's what he calls it, with China. That's his goal. And as a result, he says trade wars are good and easy to win. Yeah, to which the uh, UK Prime Minister says, hold my beer. And that's about to get even more interesting today, I think. <laughs> but... If we're looking at a type one trade war here, is China thinking it's the same thing? Is this a limited war on a limited front? Well, I would argue not, because of course, as Deng Xiaoping very famously said, it doesn't matter if a cat is black or white as long as it catches mice. Meaning that the market mechanism, which is part of the American psyche, isn't relevant if it doesn't actually have a positive political or social goal for China. If it does, they will adopt it. If it doesn't, they won't adopt it. And America is trying to insist that they adopt it under all circumstances. 
The problem is China's political economic model, which is very successful in many respects, cannot integrate the kind of reforms that America wants it to alongside fair trade without coming under significant stress. For example, if you get rid of state aid, you have a huge crisis amongst SOEs. If you get rid of low-cost loans, huge crisis amongst SOEs, massive unemployment. If you get rid of what I call markets, meaning that they must have a social function rather than being freely traded in terms of supply and demand with no state leaning on them, you have a crisis. And if you get rid of mercantilism or selling a lot and buying very little, buying raw materials, selling high value added, which is the Chinese trade model, well, then you end up with a balance of payments crisis and an economic crisis. So China's not going to allow it. So America's starting with number one, but for China, it's actually number two. So given history, therefore, just to replicate that point, for the US, if they want to remain global hegemon and everyone thinking in US dollar terms, which most of us still do in terms of trade, they can't stick with a number one strategy if the opponent, as it were, is thinking in terms of number two. That doesn't make sense. So here's a controversial chart, and it's very irony, or ironic, and steely, and electronic-y, and a bit controversial, but look at this. What you see here in the blue is the US defense budget annually divided by 12. So that's your monthly US defense budget. And it's about 60 billion US dollars. I mean, it's a staggering sum of money. What you see on the orange line are Chinese exports to the US. So US imports from China. Now when China exports to the US, they get US dollars. What do they do with the US dollars? Generally, they recycle them back into the U.S. That has been the historical pattern up until recently. Where do they go? Into the equity market? No. Into the bond market, into the treasury bond market. The U.S. fiscal deficit is almost exactly the same size as the defense budget. So do the math. What does that mean? It means quite simply that China is financing around two-thirds of the U.S. defense budget with which the US is rebuilding its navy and its air force and basically starting to look like it wants to threaten China. Does that make any sense for China to be doing it? No. And from the US side, they're sending about $500 billion gross to China every year on the trade side, with the profits and taxation of which and the technology transfer of which is helping China remilitarize. So from the American side, does that make sense? No. So I would argue, if you're von Clausewitz, rather than an economist, you would say it's actually more logical to divorce. The blue can go up, but the orange needs to go down. Otherwise, you're just paying for each other to threaten each other. Does that really make any sense? And the answer is no. So therefore, you've had the heavy brigade coming in in the US and talking about divorce being preferable to this. Trump saying, I won't let China overtake me uh, on my watch. You've got the National Intelligence Agency talking about China being an ideological threat. And these aren't my words. These are direct quotes from these heavy brigades in, in the US. The national defense strategy calls China a rival rather than a trade partner. And they talk about the Indo-Pacific, not the Asia-Pacific. My job title is still Asia-Pacific, by the way, just so that you know. But if you cut off trade ties, which we're already seeing to an extent, and you cut off technology ties, which we're seeing happening with Huawei, et cetera, et cetera, and you cut off capital flows, which they're talking about doing now as well, if you follow the news, you've cut every thread that links the two countries pretty much. So the US strategy is, you know, hegemony or bust. That's pretty much where they're going. But you cut all those umbilical cords. And that has really serious implications. Because in this type two war, if you will, the biggest US weapon actually isn't the US military. It's actually the dollar or king dollar itself. And the reason for that is at the moment globally, for a number of different reasons, 
nobody loves Ray Mound, if you'll excuse my, uh, my pun there, that if you look at the share of interbank transfers by different currency within the SWIFT network, that thin, lead right, thin red line, if you can see it on the screen, that's renminbi x Hong Kong. It's utterly irrelevant, utterly irrelevant, and it's going down. Nobody transacts internationally in renminbi within the SWIFT network. It's all dollars, euro, and even sterling, despite the problems going on in the UK. Now, there are reasons for that, as I said. Capital controls, that's a big one. Uh, asset quality is another one. Uh, the fact that the renminbi doesn't float completely freely, that's a third. But as a result, long and short of it, nobody wants to use renminbi internationally. At the moment, that gives the dollar a lot of power. And here, you have to therefore question the 100-year strategy some people talk about you know, vis-a-vis -vis the Chinese authorities, because the US trade deficit, ironically, gives it power. Now, here's China's trade position with the rest of the world. What you can notice is China has to use dollars to still do trade with the rest of the world because people don't want the renminbi globally. Where does it earn those dollars from on a net basis? Well, have a look at that. Dark blue is the rest of the world. Light blue is the eurozone. And red is the US. So the European Union and the US, even more so, provide China with nearly all its net US dollar inflows, which it needs to then trade with everybody else. And the red ones are talking about going away, which will absolutely sever the amount of dollars that China can earn to then spend with other people. So as I said, the US dollar gets its power because it ironically runs a trade deficit. And with most countries, that isn't a problem. But with China, the physical deficit is seen as physically weakening the US. So therefore, they're pushing back on that. So where do we go from there? Well, to be continued, basically, because I think von Clausewitz would look at what I'm saying and agree that nobody said trade wars are good and easy to win, even if this strategy of an economic divorce makes sense from a geostrategic perspective for the US, even if that's very uncomfortable to consider as global traders. But obviously, there's a downside to that. My lovely stock market is not going to do too well in that environment for Donald Trump. That's his particular trade-off. But the geostrategic imperative is absolutely clear, as is that for a stronger dollar. Now, we're seeing this push and pull between the renminbi and the dollar playing out in various different places, uh, tectonic plates getting ready for an eruption. I've highlighted a couple of different countries there which you could say are in the news. Let's just be neutral and put it like that, and which tie into this broader strategic shift potentially. No one knows exactly which one will be the eruption point. It could be somewhere else, but any one of them potentially could be, and we have to keep following that news. None of us like that, but I'm going to conclude there and say that it's very easy to put your head in the sand and say, yes, yes, this is all high-level geopolitics. I'm not really interested. I just want to get on with business. But as Trotsky very famously said, and I don't think anyone's ever quoted Trotsky at GTR before, you might not be interested in war, but war might be interested in you. And unfortunately, I think that's the backdrop we all have to deal with. Thank you very much. So let's uh, welcome up uh, Ajay Sharma, the regional head of global trade and receivables finance for Asia for HSBC. Ajay. Um, Timothy Stratford, managing partner of Covington and Burling and the former assistant U.S. trade representative. Timothy. Uh, Vishal Kapoor, managing director and Asia trade head for Citi. Vishal. And Claire Thompson. Executive Vice President, Enterprise Partnerships for MasterCard. Welcome, Claire. Okay, everyone. Great, everyone settled. Thank you for leaving me a seat over here. I'll join you. 
Timothy, if we could uh, start with you, please, um, because you also, in addition to your uh, your previous and current roles, you are you are currently also the chairman of the American Chamber of Commerce in China, AmCham uh, China. So you're obviously uh, hearing voices from both sides uh, of the Pacific, uh, particularly the American business community and how they're feeling uh, the effects of the trade war and what their viewpoints are. Now, in light of what Michael has also just said about where the administration uh, want, where the U.S. administration wants to go with this and how there might be misperceptions about whether this is meant to be something that's a limited, limited in its objectives versus more long-term, comprehensive, and and hegemonic. Uh, Can you maybe map out for us in your own words, what do you see as the the two negotiating positions and how they might evolve in the coming months? That's a very tough question, especially after that presentation. Um, But I think the presentation is accurate in... um, pointing out that there are a lot of different views about what is really at stake in the U.S.-China trade uh, war and what are the objectives of each country. And I think that's sort of the fundamental question. Uh, The U.S. government really hasn't explained very clearly what their overall objectives are. Uh, I know that there are officials in China who have concluded that the goal of the United States is to contain China's uh, economic and technological development and even to undermine Communist Party rule. And if the government of China has that view, then you can see why they would be very wary about accepting any kind of trade agreement with the U.S. if the U.S. has a longer-term strategy that this trade deal would be part of. On the U.S. side, I don't think it's the consensus view in the U.S. government, and it's certainly not the consensus view in the business community or in the broader American population that the U.S. and China should have a kind of a decoupling. There are some people in the U.S. government who do feel that way. Their view is that everything that continues to happen that uh, helps China to grow economically and technologically will ultimately be used against the United States. Therefore, we should not uh, promote that further. But I don't think that's the, the consensus view. But what it creates is a lot of uncertainty and what business people hate the most is uncertainty. We want a business environment that's predictable and that seems fair. Uh, And so long as the trade negotiations are continuing, we have uncertainty. And actually this is further in the agenda of those who do think that a decoupling is in the best interest because as long as there's uncertainty, companies very responsibly have to come up with alternative plans for their investments, for their supply chains and so on. So that's kind of the state that we find ourselves in. I would add uh, two other points. If you look at the trade issues particular, specifically from the point of view of a trade negotiator, which I used to be, um, those issues are pretty challenging. Uh, and I would put them in three categories. First, you have a long, long, long list of issues where the U.S. government believes that China hasn't kept previous commitments. And so there's an effort to try to uh, get performance in those areas. The second category would be areas where uh, the U.S. government believes that the, the world has changed, China has changed, and the old commitments that China made are no longer fair in the modern world. For example, the way e-commerce operates and so on. And so part of the U.S. negotiating uh, objective is to try to uh, have new commitments that would cover things that were not adequately covered in the past in the U.S. view. And then the third area 
is more along the uh, area of, of some of the slides we just saw, where there are fundamental differences between the Chinese economic developmental model and the U.S. model, and a feeling that that is incompatible and results in, in uh, unfair competitive conditions. And so those are the things that the U.S. is trying to deal with strictly from a trade negotiation point of view, and they're all very challenging issues, although... Uh, one must say that the trade negotiators made a lot of progress over the last year and a half. But in addition to that, you have concerns about national security, you have concerns about law enforcement, you have concerns about human rights, and all of these things are adding to the uncertainty. Excellent. Thank you, Timothy. I just want to remind everyone to please use the Slido app and send in some questions. We'll see them over here and we'll work them into the conversation. Um, I want to turn to uh, Vishal uh, because, you know, Citi has done a lot of interesting work on how Asia has been evolving in terms of the internal regional uh, integration by trade prior to the trade war. It's very important to point out because, the, the uh, as, as Peter also mentioned, the internal trade within Asia now exceeds the region's trade with the rest of the world. And Citi has done some very good work on A to A, Asia to Asia, trading networks, uh, which will certainly benefit from the RCEP uh, negotiations, which are meant to be uh, implemented in the coming year or two. So if you could comment on how that process is playing out uh, not only you know prior to, but certainly now in light of the trade war, but also, of course, some of the, the now the, in the services economy, cross-border digitization, how that's going to play a role as well. Yeah, thanks, Parag. That's a very good question. Uh, so while a lot of focus has been on the trade wars, what we have found is that a few years ago, there was a transition that was beginning to happen. And that was that a lot of the marginal investments within Asia were actually moving to other parts of Asia. And we started noticing these flows and started working with our clients. And interestingly, believe it or not, this is the fastest growing trade network right now globally, Asia to Asia, as I think Peter also mentioned in the, in the morning. While there has been a lot of focus on what's happening on the US-China trade flows, to some extent, uh, the media and the markets have ignored this trend where a lot of the large flows are moving within Asia, say, Korea trades flowing into India, Taiwan going into other parts. There are large corporates within Asia which are setting up very large manufacturing setups in other parts of Asia. So I think this trend is going to continue. The starting point of this trend was trying to diversify their manufacturing base out of China into other parts. But increasingly, I think, since the apt topic of our discussion is future of trade, uh, time isn't far when you'll see China actually importing from these markets because the manufacturing and the size and scale of these operations across Asia are likely to grow very, very fast. So important thing is there are many corridors, and if you look at our business more from a corridor perspective than just client, you will find there are tremendous opportunities and flows in the market to capture. And this, in our mind, is going to be the fastest growing market, at least for the next three to five years. 
Michelle, you're reminding uh, me of how last year China held its first big import fair rather than export fair, and it drew you know more than 100 countries. And it, what it's trying to do is to try to uh, try to sort of mitigate the fears that countries have that as they engage in more integrated or free trade with China, that whatever surpluses they may ever have had, uh, in the case of Brazil, for example, they had a surplus turned into a large deficit, that that is managed. So they're trying to use the Belt and Road Initiative uh, as a way to obviously build trade partnerships and to, and to uh, find a way to keep it as even as possible to strengthen diplomatic bonds, which actually brings me to, to Ajay, because HSBC um, you know, has played a role in uh, Belt and Road, you know, long history here in the region, and uh, a big supporter and, and actively involved in cross-border trade finance activity here in Asia for 150 years. Um, and of course, all of us fly on planes in and out of Changi Airport, and we see that HSBC identifies itself very much with uh, cross-border Asian uh, connectivity. What we see with infrastructure investment and trade on the back of that, you have the rapid urbanization of these societies, growing consumption, um, more investment flows, and those ultimately, and as we know throughout history, beget more trade. So talk to us a bit about your point of view um, on how Belt and Road fits into all of this with the trade, uh, you know, sort of tensions as a backdrop. So a few things, right? I think... uh Michael's presentation was interesting, uh, somewhat depressing to start the seminar with. But I think if you look at the positives, uh, you know, Asian GDP and you know, this is the Asian century, uh, as we read about it, uh, we are very, very bullish in terms of where Asia is headed, urbanization, uh, consumption growth, middle class growth, all the trends are suggesting that uh, we are in for a good ride. Uh, intra-Asia trade is... Mr. Ong said 52%. uh, The corridors are growing. So the free trade agreements are kicking in. So EU with various countries in ASEAN, uh, we have a huge ASEAN strategy. We've been seeing this trend for some time. Uh, The BRI and possibly when RCEP gets signed will again give another boost uh, to intra-Asia trade. The Belt and Road as an initiative is something that we as a bank have been focusing on for multiple years now. And I think it's now the version two is a different version. It's uh, taken into account a lot of negative feedback that came earlier. But just the entire linking up of Asia, whether it's through transport infrastructure improvements, uh, will itself create a huge amount of uh, additional trade and and facilitate trade flows across the region. So for us, it's an amazing opportunity, the growth of Asia, uh, the free trade agreements being signed, and Belt and Road on top of that. Mm -hmm. Excellent. So there's generally a whole lot of optimism, if you will, about Asia maintaining that trajectory of of internal integration with uh, Asia-to-Asia trade, RCEP, BRI, all reinforcing that. And so it gives a sense of a different kind of decoupling, actually, than from what what Michael referred to. He was talking about U.S. and China. But is there this broader Asia decoupling going on? And if that is true, it doesn't quite meet the definition of deglobalization, because what you have is 
actually, you know, dozens of countries, 70, 80 countries participating in a broader regional uh, integration process. So that's not necessarily deglobalization, even as it maybe uh, seems to push the U.S. out a little bit further. Now, with uh, Claire, um, you know, MasterCard is American, but a very global, uh, you know, uh, payments technology company. How are you responding to all of this, and how are you going to, uh, you know, play a, a greater growing role as you aspire to do here in Asia as it seems to go its own way away from the United States? Sure, yeah. So we talk about, obviously, signing the next trade agreement and, uh, and where those are going to come from. And certainly where I'm currently based, that's kind of top of mind. Um, but I think, you know, we talk about deglobalization and we can, we can clearly see that taking shape. And the impact of that is how are you going to manage your supply chains? They're going to have to change. So what are the enablers to allow you to do that? The decoupling is really the worrying piece. Because if you think about, we've, we've had a period of living with global standards. Think about standards in telco. Think about standards in financial services. Even the definition of a shipping container is defined. What about a world where that goes away, where there are no standards? Imagine the impact on global trade and how businesses interact with each other. So at MasterCard, we've been focusing, okay, you know us very much for payments, but beyond that is how can we ensure that we can help companies manage their supply chains? How can we create trust among companies? So I think there's, there's a different couple of features about how we've been going about that. I think what's underpinning this is we have to continue with the collaboration across governments, across banks, and across organizations, the private sector. We can clearly see examples of that where the more progressive governments, here in Singapore you have a network trade platform, where really they're playing a significant role in digital in cooperation with governments and banks and private organizations. So very much we are playing in that space and also collaborating alongside with banks, be it in trade finance consortiums. So I think in all of this, as we see the decoupling, as we see the deglobalization, the collaboration is key. And then coming back just to the point about how we then enable companies to actually manage their supply chains. So how do you give a company an identity, an identity that's trusted? You know, how do I know whether they're credit worthy? How do I know they've not been on the sanctions list? How do I know they're not gonna disrupt my supply chain? Therefore, it's about giving a digital trusted identity that's consistently used. And that's where the private sector can, and at MasterCard, we're really trying to drive that. Because um, when you have trust, you have trade. It is worth pointing out that the you know financial institutions represented here, as with the long histories and global um, you know services that they can provide, really do fill a gap that Asians themselves have not yet been able to do so. So I think you're making a very very important point. So Michael, I do want to come back to you on a couple of things because obviously we're talking about trade, but you did raise and speculate on on two important things: currencies and capital flows. And both of those were left sort of sort of open ended. So if you could, I have two two questions for you, one on each. You said money is power, but really, you know, in a time like this when we're seeing the RMB uh, weakening, we uh, 
it, it sort of exposes the fact that the RMB has not really internationalized nearly as much as China would aspire it to. Clearly, it's been much more a speculative uh, instrument than it has been a genuinely internationalizing currency, and your own SWIFT data points that out. So talk to us about how in light of Asianization, all of the trade agreements moving forward within Asia and China's growing role within those, is can China at least aspire, and as it has done at least in some bilateral trade pairings, are we going to see the RMB play a stronger role, uh, continue to in Asia, if not globally? That's, that's one. That's on the currency. On capital flows, you, know, you left that out because there clearly we're not moving in a direction of decoupling because when it comes to uh, Chinese mainland equities being uh, uh, taken up with MSCI, there is trillions of dollars of capital that China is, is very keen to, uh, to, to absorb through its capital account liberalization. So how does that play into the thesis? Okay, thank you. Trying to sum all this up, the, the, the trade side, the currency side, the capital side, they're all the same coin, effectively. Oh, this renminbi coin, if we think about it. Um, for years and years, people have been asking me, you know, when will we see a truly global renminbi? You know, isn't it inevitable? And every single time I reply, we won't see it, and it isn't inevitable until, until something huge changes inside China itself, which continually doesn't change. Right. You know, I can't tell you how many years I've been hearing people ask me that, and every year I say, it won't happen this year, I don't think it will happen. And that's still my response. The data that I showed you speak for themselves. It's not internationalizing, and it's not internationalizing because it can't be traded freely. It may be getting weaker, but it's not freely available to move in and out of China. That's why we have CNY for onshore and CNH for offshore. Until that distinction goes away, it's just not going to be demanded. Now, you can argue that a subset of countries may consider using it. And you can do like a map of the region or even of the world and say, if I were country X or Y or Z, would I want to use the renminbi? But it's a very small subset because they are the countries that run trade surpluses with China. So if you're a lucky country and you run a trade surplus with China, you might consider it. But you will only be able to use it with other countries in that subset. And you're talking about primary commodity producers. In fact, if you look at it along the Belt and Road, pretty much it's Australia and New Zealand, uh, South Korea, I believe, uh, and then mainly oil-producing countries. not really much of a sexy subset like BRICS. You can't make an anagram out of it, even if you try. And on the capital flow side, it's a similar argument. Why would your money go in if you can't get out? And you can clearly see there's a political uh, headwind in the US at the moment starting to push for a decoupling on that capital side as well. Now, China's obviously hungry for those dollars. They'll take as many of them as they can get. And they're actually getting increasingly hungry for them because there's a shortage, I think. Uh, looming. But, you know, they're in Western hands. And when we're talking about dollars, they originate from the US and nobody else. So it all comes down to what the Americans want at the end of the day. And none of us get a vote in that, I'm afraid, on this panel. Mm-hmm. Good point. Um, we do have questions coming in, which is great. I just want to come back to, to Timothy also, to if you could elaborate a bit further and break down your thinking on the U.S.-China relationship to some of the sectoral uh, level issues. And you know, you did tell me earlier you were with GM uh, for a number of years in China. We see that a number of companies are going with the sort of splintered regional supply chain model. They're saying they're, they're going to, you're going to have to make things where you sell them, and that's the way the regulatory architecture and fragmentation of the world is going. I call it the 
Dell model, because Dell has been doing that for a very long time. And now most American multinationals are realizing that in order to get behind the tariff wall and so forth, make it where you sell it. So, um, you know, we see American companies also responding to TPP by saying, you know, now that we are going to be disadvantaged vis-a-vis some of our, uh, our, our competitors in terms of selling into China, we now have to have an even greater presence. So American corporate FDI is expanding to a number of uh, Asian markets as a result of the U.S. not joining TPP. So if you we can look at automotive and technology, right, two of the critical areas where, uh, you know, the, the U.S. has been um, trying to strengthen, obviously, but or in order to reduce the deficit, but now the trade war has actually counteracted those. Uh, give us your take on the most important sectors and uh, you know, how, how they are going to reposition themselves. Thank you. I, d- I do think that's a very perceptive question because I think the trade war is affecting different sectors in different ways. Um, one of the big distinctions is whether in your particular industry you follow a, mat- uh, a model of manufacturing in China for China. The automotive industry is an example of where that happens uh, most of the cars sold in China are manufactured there, and there's also an a, incredibly robust supply chain in, in uh, China to support that. So I think that's going to, that's going to continue. In the tech sector, uh, there has been a, a, a lot of um, variance in the supply chain with a lot of multiple sources for different types of high-tech products, and I think that's uh, affected by the trade war uh, quite significantly. And I think there's another aspect of the trade war that also is very relevant here, and that is the, the trade controls. Um, you know, it used to be, you know, we talked a little bit, uh, Michael talked about the interplay of national security and trade. These are two different areas, but they're impinging on one another more and more. The U.S. has traditionally tried to protect national security by export controls on sensitive technologies and products, and also by CFIUS, which is the process for reviewing inbound investments in the United States. Now it's harder to separate uh, sensitive technologies from technologies that are pervasive throughout an economy. You know, you look at our smartphones and they have very sophisticated semiconductors, they use AI, they use big data. And how can you block that from normal trade when it uh, permeates everything? So right now, the United States is coming out with new rules on what they call emerging new technologies and on foundational technologies. And this is going to further restrict the amount of trade that you can have. So if you're in a high-tech sector, uh, then uh, you're going to be impacted uh, quite significantly. One other area, if you look at China's industrial policies, where they have uh, selected 10 cutting-edge technologies for the future in Made in China 2025, they are focused on developing greater self-sufficiency. So how your company and how your industry intersects with the Chinese regulators and industrial planners will also have a big impact on what you can do. And no doubt the trade war will uh, accelerated China's efforts at uh, Made in China 2025. Um, Vishal and Ajay, a couple of questions have come in that are directed at, at you, and I'm going to sort of ask them both and give you both a chance to respond um, and prioritize how, how you like. But one is around um, how can the banks accelerate the transition towards more paperless trade, right? Again, serving as that platform as you do. How can you help with the trade finance, the currency, um, exchange and so forth in a more paperless, efficient way. That's one. And the other, I think it's very important also in the context of Belt and Road, how can banks play a greater role in the new priority towards have, to have more green trade uh, as well? So if each of you could comment uh, briefly on those questions, that would be great. Sure. Um, thank you. Uh, so in terms of how far away we are from being paperless, 
three to five years. Uh, it's not our paper. <laughs> it is a paper which is used to do trade. So we handle uh, 100 million pieces of paper a year. Uh, it comes through us. We look at it, make sure there's it's safe and you know money laundering and sanctions checks and everything else. The world's going digital really, really quickly. Uh, so there are a couple of things. One, a third of the business that we probably do is open account. Uh, it, that is already totally digital. I don't need a piece of paper there. Uh, it's host to host, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, there's obviously blockchain, which is a big hope in terms of uh, sharing information in a safe, secure manner. That will accelerate the whole thing, and who knows what future technologies will come in. How do you use AI to really go through the papers that you have and eliminate them altogether? Uh, so I don't think it's too far away, and we are really very positive in terms of uh, going paperless as soon as possible. Uh, what are we doing on sustainability? Uh, so the bank itself has a huge, big $100 billion target, and that's for green financing. Uh, but we're working with customers uh, because, I mean, and this is not necessarily a public relations exercise that our corporates are doing because it's being driven by end consumer demand. Uh, it's the consumers who want sustainable goods to be sold to them. And therefore, the issue is, are there any independent third-party sustainable standards? No. Uh, therefore, companies go to people who are independent, work with us. Uh, we've done a couple of deals, uh, one with Puma, one with... Walmart, which was in the media. Uh, and these are, I think, the first attempts in terms of trying to uh, be more responsible as a lender. And we are very committed to that as a bank. So we think increasingly we'll see more of these deals. Uh, what's really important is, I think, development of standards. But I'm sure Vishal has thoughts too. Yeah, thanks, Ajay. Uh, I think uh, I, I we need to go back a little bit of what's happened in the trade business. If you see about 10 years ago, the focus for most of us was customization. You know, we wanted to create solutions which were extremely customized for large clients. And I think if we need to digitize, we need to move to a more standardized products and solution because that's the first step. You, it is not practically possible to have hundreds and thousands of different solutions if you want the economies of scales and, re and the advantages of digitizing. So I can share with you uh, on our journey, our first step was to standardize our own operations, our own, the way we operate. Because if you look at a bank, banks have lots of branches. And if each branch is doing the similar processing at their end, it's not going to be standard. It's going to be very different. We had to centralize. We created centralized processing centers. And once we did that, we are able to now move on the digitization much faster. As Ajay mentioned, some of the external components, it'll take time in terms of when you are engaging with third parties. But I can share with you what we've been able to achieve is our engagement with the client has become fairly digitized. In the last 12 months, we have increased the inflow of engagement with our clients from almost about 30, 35% to reaching now about 75%. 
so to summarize 75% of our clients are sending or engaging with us in a digital manner and that's a straight pass through because this is getting processed in a centralized setup now this is the starting this is how it's going to grow if you take a simple example you all deal with an uber a grab and amazon right and we all love it it's simple straightforward but it's all standardized that's the way it works and trade has to become more standardized at the banks across the stakeholders and that's what will make it more digitized but i'm just add a couple of points i think one the role of fintechs in driving paperless is really really critical and important and how do banks and customers engage with them is going to be key uh, and not to underestimate the role of regulators in driving change and making sure that bills of lading and any other document that facilitates trade is acceptable to them in a digital format so i think those two are also going to be critical drivers uh, for this business to go paperless excellent well you've responded to a lot of the questions uh, that have been asked by the audience which is great we've time for just one more it's for claire a number of people have wanted to get um, you know have been curious want a bit more depth uh, on um, on two things that you alluded to that mastercard is doing one is around this sort of global trading platform because you play such a critical role in reducing the transaction costs for SMEs and others to participate in cross border uh, trade and the other is on the trusted identification and verification if you could say a bit more about those two things and where they're headed that would be excellent sure so going back to we developed a global platform it's called mastercard track um and really i I call that it's the it's the access to the B2B services of of Mastercard clearly but way beyond that it's also with all our providers and our partners um I work in the enterprise partnerships group so we partner with banks we partner with other technology solution providers and within that and when we created track um for us to clearly create something that was interoperable we had to create a whole universe of companies and give them an identity and digitize that identity and the idea is then working with the banks working with the consortia working with our governments um we then take the identity and it's used across their platforms as well so you have this unifying identity that isn't sitting in one digital island that then sits across all these different platforms and then in doing that and we take that a step further and you think about blockchain and that identity then can be linked to that blockchain node and that can create the interoperability across the blockchain ecosystem in trade finance as well so for us that's really how we're coming at it um and for us we remain absolutely committed to ensure we have about 210 million uh identities within track of which about 85% of them are for SMEs around the world and we remain absolutely committed to really give them a level playing field in participating in global trade. Fantastic. Well, this has been a, a excellent start to the day and a very positive one, wide-ranging discussion. Uh please first can everyone join me in thanking our panelists uh for kicking off the day. Thank you everyone. And Thanks for taking the time to listen. Subscribe to our free podcast to hear the top trade discussions from over 20 international GTR events, one-on-one interviews, and more. If you'd like to be kept up to date with GTR's daily news and industry events, sign up for our free newsletters at www.gtreview.com/register. 